Welcome to the Lucky Let Court Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express and a proud member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on Monday, November 23rd, and here we are saying goodbye to the 2020 tennis season. Kissing it goodbye. It's over. The Nito ATP finals are in the books as of Sunday. Daniil Medvedev is your 2020 champion. The Russian takes that title in the grandest of fashions, running the table 5-0. And Medvedev is the first player in Nito ATP Finals history to defeat the number one, number two, and number three ranked players on his way to the title. Just a great effort from the 24-year-old who's now ranked number four. Also a great effort from Dominic Team, who reached the final. Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic were semifinalists at this tournament. And really, great performances by all eight players who played and great performance by the tour and the people who put this show on. It was great to have some tennis in 2020. It wasn't a perfect year. In fact, it, it sucked. Coronavirus has been bringing us all down for quite some time, but it, it was nice to have the sport back to get in another two Grand Slams and some big Masters 1000 tournaments and to finish it all off with the Nito ATP Finals. Unfortunately, the WTA didn't get their, do, get to do their season-ending event, and that sucked as well. But this was a good event, and we're going to um, chat about it now with Tennis Now. Editor Richard Pagliaro, very pleased to spend some time with him this morning, kind of go over the nooks and crannies of what happened in London last week and just yesterday when Medvedev won that title. So why don't you have a listen? I'll see you guys on the other side. Richard Pagliaro, always great to speak with you. How you doing today? I'm just catching my breath after a great ATP Finals. Really exciting, and uh, I'm you know glad there was a tournament, but it really lived up, exceeded my expectations. It was great. Yeah, it was fun, right? It, um, you know, didn't have the energy. The one thing I thought was interesting when it first started was they always keep the crowd like shrouded in in black. They turn the lights off and it kind of like worked for this event because we didn't even have to become so painfully aware of the fact that nobody was there. Yeah, that was true. And also I like when they showed the brief crowd shots when you would see like team and his trainer, or you would see the players there, you know, in popcorn stuff watching. It was cool to see them uh, watching, but it was, it was a shame, you know, the 12th year, the last year in London, because the crowds have been, so phenomenally supportive there and so into it, so enthusiastic. It was a shame that, that London went out the way it did, but I guess, you know, the alternative no tournament, it's obviously better than that. Yeah. London is, uh, you got to get, you got to just take a bow and, and like appreciate what they've done. The fact that they support Wimbledon and the ATP finals with just like full on passion year in, year out, there's never a question that it'll be a packed house and that the crowds will be enthusiastic just fantastic job by the O2 and everything was spot on I think from the start to the finish the way they ran the show was class act it was great it's uh it's going to be uh, big shoes to um to fill for Turin I'm sure they'll be up for it it'll be cool with some great young Italian players possibly playing in that event over the next five years but London kicked ass wouldn't you say Oh, absolutely. And also, just to throw in that, you know, I've been to Queen's Club a couple of times, and that tournament is a phenomenal tournament if you ever get a chance. It's like being at Wrigley Field for baseball. So you're right on top of the court. People are so passionate. They're so friendly, so polite. It's London does a great job right across the board. They did a fantastic job. Yeah, yeah, definitely. you got to hand it to them. Um, 
And what happened on the court was pretty remarkable. Daniil Medvedev, um, damn, did he come up with a great performance. Runs the table 5-0. and oh. I mean, the first player to defeat number one, two, and three at the NITO ATP Finals ever. Only the fourth player to do it in history of the ATP. Um, just clutch performance, great tennis, a great follow-up on his title in Paris. I mean, what can you say about Daniil Medvedev after what he's done in the last uh, in the month of November? Well, you and I were talking during the tournament, wow, he might just run the table. And he, that's exactly what he did for me. You know, one of the big, in a phenomenal 10-match run, one of the big moments was when Rafa Sir for it against him and to not only break him in that moment, but break him at love. I mean, break him decisively, that was a huge turnaround. And I think the other match, the Novak match, he just took it to Novak, even though the score, you know, it straight sets heat. It looked like Novak had no idea how to break him down, which is which is shocking from the world number one. But that's the kind of level that Medvedev brought. And like you said, to beat the top three players in the world and to do it at the tour's most important tournament was tremendous. And here's a guy that after the Open, a lot of, or after even the French Open losing first round, a lot of people were like, wow, what the hell happened to Medvedev? This guy with six straight finals, where did he go? Where's Medvedev? And then he showed us all where he was in a big way with the Paris and London back-to-back. And I think more importantly, it vaults him into the discussion of 2021 as a potential Grand Slam champion. Absolutely. If he wasn't there this year, and, um, you know, the semifinal run at the U.S. Open was not bad at all. He was 15-0 and in sets before he got stopped by Dominic Team, who went on to win the event. I think a lot of people tend to forget that, that... He did show us a little bit of the streaky and red-hot Medvedev in New York. And, um, yeah, but overall, yeah, of course he struggled. He didn't have a top-10 win, but now he's got seven in the month of November alone. That's got to be some kind of a record. That was pretty damn impressive. And I thought it was interesting the fact that he um, rebounded from an 0-3 debut at the ATP Finals in 2019, and he's the only player that was able to come back from a debut and run the table the next year. Djokovic was 0-3 in his 2007 debut and then won the title the next year, but he did lose one match, and I've got a little trivia question on that one. Do you know who beat Novak Djokovic at the ATP Finals in 2008? Uh, I'm going to guess Roddick, but I don't know the answer. Sanga. Sanga was 0-2, and uh-huh. he, beat, he beat him in the third-round Robin match, uh, 6-1 wow. in the third. Um, so Novak wasn't able to run the table that year. But still, just to be up there with, with uh, Novak Djokovic and that to be the only player to ever do that, beat the top three players at the same event, I mean, it shows what kind of a player Medvedev is. But here's a question I want to ask to you about Medvedev. Um, what do you like most about? What do you like? I mean, there's so many things, but if you had to pick one thing, what, what do you like the most about his game when he's playing this way? I guess what I like about him is that, number one, he's a very smart and shrewd player. He can read the opponent, and also the match or the opponent never looks too big for him. It never, like, even this run, it doesn't look like, oh, my God, wow, Medvedev played over his head or beyond his, it's like he can play to that level consistently on hard court, no problem. So I like that his his level is very high. And I also like just uh, small things like on the server. He doesn't stall. He doesn't go to the towel. He gets the ball. He wants to play. He's ready to play. He has an idea in mind what he wants to do. And what I liked from these last few matches is he 
brought the sneak attack in on team on the return a few times where he'll deep return right down the middle. Next thing you know, he's at the net. You can't lob the guy. He's 6'6". I know he's not a great net player, but just that he was able to bring in little sort of tactical wrinkles and leave you thinking about something. If you look at the Rafa match, I mean, Rafa's like arguably the greatest grinder we've ever seen in the sport. At the end of the match, he was serving volley a few times in a row because he just couldn't, you could tell he couldn't break him down from the back of the court, and that's saying something when you can go against two of the greatest champions of all time and they cannot break you down on a hard court, and I think he, he showed everyone. And the guy moves phenomenally well yeah. for six. He's a really, really great mover. He anticipates the ball well, and obviously the two-handed backhand you know, one of the best in the sport, and you saw that when Novak started going to the slice backhand more and more against him, and you saw Rafa go to the slice against him too because you just can't batter his backhand. You just can't break it down. It's just a, such a reliable, such a simple, clean, compact shot, but so reliable. Mm. And I like that he doesn't overplay. He doesn't overhit. He doesn't have to impress you hitting a 100-mile-an-hour forehand. He moves the ball around the court with patience and with a, with a wisdom. Yeah, he plays chess out there. And um, yeah. you're right, he moves so well if you consider the height of 6'6". I mean, he's just... The thing about you mentioned about his consistency is true, but what I find remarkable is that he's consistent out of the corners on the run. Defensively, he gets depth on his shots. He, he has tactics when he's out there playing defense. He runs so many balls down. He wins points defensively. He wins them offensively. Uh, he just he does a lot of great things, and of course his serve will top out close to 140. He can spot it. He's so confident with him, and he gets the, the the bigger the moment, the better he serves. He's a fun guy to watch. His personality has really developed. I think he's come such a long way from the year at Wimbledon when he was throwing coins at the umpire's chair. I don't think we knew quite what to think about Daniil Medvedev at that point. He was certainly a player to watch back then, but a little bit controversial, and and I don't think people had any idea of really how nice of a guy he is, how interesting of a character he is. So all these things add up to make him just a really fun watch. And, I mean, when he plays this well, yeah, it just adds to it. I mean, and as you mentioned, everybody's going to be talking about this guy really should be starting to do better or, you know, do well at the slams and maybe win one. He's already got the U.S. Open final. He's proven that he can play well in New York. You would think the Australian Open would play well for him. But then you have the question of what can he do at Roland Garros where he's never won a match and – his game makes sense on grass, but he's not quite comfortable there. So he's still got work to do. But, yeah, I think he's in the mix along with Dominic Team as potential slam winners, right, next year? Oh, absolutely. I, I think you're right. And also at the hard court slams because I think Clay is always going to be, you know, not a stumbling block, but it's always going to be a challenge for him because he plays so flat. And it, it the yeah. slice and drop shot are just more effective on that surface. So I think Clay will always be a bit of a challenge for him. But I would say at both hard court slams, he's – He's right in the mix for sure. I mean, you saw it. the other thing with him is for a big guy like that, you never look at him and think, "Wow, Medvedev looks winded. He looks tired. It looked like that point." Like the longer you want to play, he's he's fine with it. Mm-hmm. Like you never see him really sucking air or looking like he can't physically hang. I mean, he, the guy's super fit as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love you. Look at his top record against the top ten. It was nine and nineteen before November. 
and now it's 16 and 19. Looks a lot better, and and that's the type of tennis he's capable of playing against anybody. I mean, he finally got that win against Nadal. I think that was a massive win for him. You know, it was 0-3 against Rafa, of course, with that memory of blowing the match point in 2019 in London. So a lot of things working for him and a, and a lot of confidence to take forward. So that's that's really exciting. One of the players he beat at the ATP Finals was Novak Djokovic. Djokovic finishes the year number one, but didn't quite get that sixth title at the ATP Finals. So he leaves Federer on top of the list with the all-time ATP Finals title list with six. What kind of a year was it for Novak Djokovic? Started with a slam. Uh, it, was a mixed bag. it was a mixed bag. I mean, for me, I would say anytime you finish number one and you win a slam, it's a good year. But by his standards, to me, it was an unfulfilling or unsatisfying year because this was a guy that we all thought was going to win the U.S. Open. And, you know, if he didn't hit himself out of the U.S. Open, there was a pretty good chance he he probably could have won it, although having said that, you saw how team beat him at the year end and team took the title. So I think, you know, if you look at it, oh, he only had five losses, and of those five, the Open he beat himself in Vienna, I'm not going to say he tanked, but he definitely wasn't, the second set, he definitely wasn't all in there. So then you're looking at losing to Rafa the French Open final, which is Rafa beats everybody in the French Open final, and then you're looking at the two other losses here where I thought it was more... Maybe a little bit of a mental malaise. He wasn't. He didn't seem sort of mentally as locked in as you'd expect from him. So I, I think he showed a lot, especially obviously the front end of the year going undefeated. But uh, you know, I think that U.S. Open that that's really going to sort of linger with him because that's one that he left on the table. I think he should be at at 18 slams right now, and then it's a different trajectory going into 2021 but having said that i still think he'll be fine and i think from novak we've seen year after year you know the the injuries whenever he's had the controversy even this year with the adria tour or with the ptpa he's always able to recalibrate sort of step back look at what he did right what he did wrong what he has to correct and he always seems to come back strong in australia so i think he he will be back strong i just think He's going to be kicking himself because he should have had two majors this year at least. And he was defending champ at Wimbledon. If that had been played, you don't know what yeah. would have went down there. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. if you ask me, if somebody asked me was Novak's year good or bad, I would I would hesitate. And I would say in the end it was bad, but only be, because of the lofty expectations he sets for himself. The Like you mentioned, the trajectory and what he's chasing and how well he was done. I mean, this guy was clearly the the player of the 2010s. He dominated it like nobody has dominated a decade before in the ATP. And, yeah, things just went south for him. I mean, in, in so many ways, the, the Adria Tour was bad for him. And then, of course, what happened in New York might have been a byproduct of a little bit of stress that he's carrying, not just because of the Adria Tour, but also because of the PTPA. And I want to hit on that also and say that, I feel like, geez, I mean, yeah, you mentioned 41 and 5, another slam, but that, yes, he should have had two, maybe three slams. I mean, I mean you think is there's a potential for him to beat Rafa at Roland Garros? Of course, you'll, we'll never know, it seems. But the PTPA and the energy he's investing into that endeavor, it seems to be just a little bit too much when you're talking about a guy that is also trying to literally run the table in an ATP season and go undefeated, which I thought and felt for a for a bit of time was actually within his reach. He wasn't able to do it. Things went horribly out of control at the U.S. Open, and then things got a little bit worse with the loss to Nadal in the Roland Garros final, and then he sort of petered out a bit here at the ATP final. So in the end, I think he didn't meet the lofty expectations we've set for him, and I really think that if he's going to continue and breaking records and, and 
break Rafa and Roger's record of, of singles Grand Slam titles that he might need to back away from all this pressure he's putting on himself with this, with this political stuff. But I don't know. Who am I to say, right? Yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, he definitely makes his life more complicated. On the other hand, I like the fact that he's vocal and that he's willing to stand up and say what he believes. And as a you know, world number one, a guy, seventeen times, he's earned that right. Yeah. Even if I don't agree with all the stuff he says, he's earned that right to to be able to say what he believes. So I think it is tricky because you're you're expending a lot of time and energy on something that isn't going to help you get to the goal, which is the which is the Grand Slam record. Obviously, at the same time, I think he genuinely wants to leave the game in a better place than when when he got there. I think his intentions are honorable and good intentions. It's just, you know, it takes away from what you can do on the court. I think in a weird way, the record chase is going to help him because the number one, we, most weeks at number one, he's on track to break that by March. So I think that record keeps him locked in and disciplined into I got to stay number one. So if you got to stay number one, you got to keep winning, winning tournaments. And then, as long as you're in that position, you're going to be in a in a spot to challenge for the for the slams. And that's obviously the the uh, the ultimate goal. So I think he'll be fine. But I do think a lot of that other stuff does weigh down on him. And even the Adria tour, the whole blowback, and then his father blaming Dimitra, all that stuff. It's like, dude, you just don't need that yeah. in your life. I mean, you just don't need it. It's just an aggravation that you can that you can do without it now the PTA the latest thing with the ATP him saying they, they don't want to work with the PTA but yet yeah. he's still going to stick with the PTPA it's almost like you're setting yourself up to be at loggerheads with the ATP current leadership and I would think with a new guy you wanted a new guy in they got Gardenzi in there I would think that's something that they could just sit down together and talk about just sort of sit down and talk about it rather than going through the whole you know, public acrimony, but we have to see how that how that plays out. But I think he's driven absolutely to get that number one record and the slams record, and I think he's going to be right there at the at the end. I think so too. Yeah, and I, but I I guess the reason I brought up what I brought up is because I think that every little bit counts, and every bit of focus and energy that he can put into winning these slams and continuing on the path that he's already been on will help him. He's going to be 34 next year. And I agree with you too. I think his intentions are great with the PTPA. I think he really cares about the players. He's one of the few guys you hear really um, talk about getting more money and more income opportunities for lower ranked players. It's just, it's just a lot to have on your plate. And you know, you watch, oh, sure. you watch him in these press conferences at London and it's like, these are like 15 minutes. He's talking about these topics and it just there's a lot of people taking cracks at him in the you know in the media and it's just a lot of stuff to have on your shoulders um he's handling it admirably but but again it wasn't a great thing. And I think it also shows like the decision making in every aspect of your career is very, very important if you decide, hey, I'm gonna go public with the PTPA and really be vocal about about the ATP player council and board not fulfilling the players' needs. You know, that's cool to do that. But that's a that's the blowback that you're going to get, as you said, is, is very very real. Or even look at Roland Garros, where he decided I'm going to really go all in on the drop shot and really try to work the drop shot to beat Rafa. Now it got him to the final. It didn't do anything for him in the final. And then sort of the conditions, like I thought the U.S. Open no crowd, I thought that would actually help him because whenever he goes against Rafa or Roger or other popular players, the crowd tends to go for the other guy. But it that also blew back up on him. So you just never know. It's just about managing every little 
small decision can have a major impact on your season. You know, that said that he was able to rebound and win Rome. I realize he didn't beat a top 10 guy at Rome, but still to win Rome, get to the French final. And, you know, look, the team match in London, he had the match up 4-0. He's 15-1 in tiebreakers all year. He's up 4-0. He's three points. And then team just goes off and goes on a bins. There was nothing he can do there. So I, I think that's a case where you just got to tip your hat to team and say he outplayed him in the end. Yeah, which he did, which he did. And yeah, you, you you didn't mention the Cincinnati title, which was always which was also good. And he was a little bit hurting in that event. I mean, he he played great this year. It just didn't meet the standards that he had. That we, you know, we thought he could run the table. I think a lot of people realistically thought maybe Djokovic is going to not lose all year and win all these slams. Didn't happen. But you know, we move on. We talk about twenty twenty one. Who do you think is um, more likely to win in these hardcourt slams? Do you go with the team Medvedev camp? And do you think it's really time for them to assert their dominance on the field, even the big three? Or do you think Rafa and Nole are lined up to, to be the, you know, the top dogs when it comes to winning majors on the hard courts in 2021? Uh, man, that's a tough one. I would say... I would definitely say Rafa at the French. I would still favor him. And Novak, you've got to go with him in Australia if it's played in a timely manner just because he's won eight times there and he's so tough. So I would still lean toward those guys. And also, let's not forget, if Australia is delayed, you're looking at even more months of preparation time. And when you give a Nadal or a Djokovic, when you give them time to prepare for an event like that, they usually answer the bell. So I think that would be in his favor although having said that you know team could have won to make team could have won the australia and the u.s he was in a position to win australia and you think maybe a couple points here and there he you know he could do it to me team is will be the next number one if there's a changing of the guard at the top i think he's the guy you got to look at but i would even look at a guy like sits a pass to me sits a pass has more variety than medvedev although i love medvedev's game a lot I think Sitsipas is longer term. He's going to be able to do more on more surfaces. Although, if you look at their accomplishments to date, you know certainly Medvedev nine titles and almost half of them are either Masters series or the ATP Finals. So yeah. Medvedev's definitely done it in bigger. He's proved himself in bigger circumstances that he's a bigger winner. And, and the same is true with Zverev too. He's got thirteen titles and he's won what four Masters series if you include the ATP finals, and he's been in a major final. So Zverev is another guy maybe we don't talk about as much because of the off-the-court sort of uh, stuff swirling around him, but he's put himself in a position, too. So I think you got to look at all those guys. And you and I have talked recently about Sinner. I think Sinner, long-term, may, he might be the most accomplished out of all of them. Yeah, Sinner's got a bright future. It's going to be fun to see what his next step will be. But, so you're you're pegging Dominic Team as the ATP's next number one, which would be the 27th of all time. You think uh, Medvedev's pretty close to him in the rankings, but he's got a lot of points uh, to to really defend next year. It's going to be interesting. But you know, do you think Medvedev is the future number one? I, the only thing that, that that gives me pause with Medvedev is, like you said at the start, is the clay court. You know, so much of the important tournaments are on clay, and I don't see him ever being like a French Open champion or, you know, maybe in Madrid he could challenge. But I just think that surface is always going to be tough for him to master, whereas you see team has been in French Open finals. He's been in Madrid. I mean, he's done it at big, big moments on clay. And he's also done it in Master Series with Indian Wells beating Federer. So I think team just his ability to adapt to more surfaces is, is a bigger thing. And uh, and you know, also that he can spin the ball more. He can do more with the slice. He just has more shots right now. Doesn't mean Medvedev can't get there, but I just think his game has currently 
constructed. I think he's a top five player. I just think to make that step to number one, you got to do it on every surface, and I don't know if he can do it to that extent on on clay. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. There's a, a huge chunk, three month chunk of the season, and so many points are available on the clay side, and that's why um, it makes sense to think that team is the guy that can get to number one next, whether whether he does it ne- next year. Or the year after, you think he's probably going to get there. And you mentioned Sitsipas, though. This is a guy who's good on all the surfaces as well, as um, especially Clay. He's fantastic on it. His best Grand Slam performance just came a few months ago at Roland Garros, or actually last month. Hard to believe, but um, and he's only 22 years old. I think when you make those comparisons between uh, the titles of Medvedev, the nine titles, and the four of them, which are really big and prestigious, you think that um, Sitsipas in a couple of years might have been able to rack up a few of those as well, though he had his trials and tribulations in 2020, and he admitted that it was a really dark year for him, and it was tough to stay positive, like all the guys on tour. But yeah, I think Sitsipas is a player that um, could be a future number one as well. I think uh, Hard to say, really, who's going to get it, but I think once you see Rafa and Nole gone from the game, you're going to see a bit of a free-for-all up there at the top, wouldn't you think? I absolutely think so. And I think, you know, the thing with Sitsipas to me is he, for his, uh, you know, he's 22, but I think his athletic upside is bigger than all those other yeah, guys yeah. we mentioned. In terms of his agility, his movement forward, especially his forward movement, is better than those guys. Although I agree with you, like Medvedev laterally, to take the ball out of the corners. He's brilliant at that. Yeah. And I just think he has a foundation for more shots than those other. He's definitely better at the net. He's better on transition. When he gets hot on his serve, you know, his serve is devastating. He doesn't return as well as Medvedev, I don't think. But yes. I think his overall athleticism, he's a better athlete than those guys. And I, to me, I think the difference now is, you know, with Medvedev, you see Gilles Severo, or you see with Rublev, Fernando Vicente, or you see now David Ferrer with Zverev. They're locked in with these guys who are really good and experienced coaches. And I'm not knocking Sitsipas' dad because he's got him to where he is, but you just wonder sometimes if maybe – just one other coach could step in and really focus it. You wonder if there's just too many people giving him information where he's not quite as clear. But, you know, having said all that, that was a devastating loss he took to Corich at the U.S. Open, and he came back strong from that. I respect how he, he came back. The Hamburg final, he lost with his great final. He had a really strong role in Garros, and he played well in London, even though he didn't get back to the semis. Yeah, so, did. you know, I'm encouraged by him. It's just he hasn't done it to the extent those other guys have done it. So potential is a is a double-edged sword he's definitely got all kinds of world all world potential it's just you got to put up the results that he's 22 years old he's still you know he's still growing and maturing i think he's going to be there and i think with him two things is that he really really wants it that's my sense of seeing him and being around him and i think he's also a guy that can be a potentially crowd-pleasing player when we get the crowds back i think just his style of play is so dynamic versatile all court i think people really get turned on by that and you know to have another one-handed backhand guy in the top 10 with him team roger and also if you want to bring uh, Dennis Shapovalov, he's there at number 12. He's right on the door of the top 10. So I think yeah. it's good for the game when you have these one-handers in, in the mix, in the brew. Yeah, we got a lot of youth right now. I was, I've said this on every, every time we chat probably, but I was worried for the state of the men's game three, four years ago, but not anymore. You got, you got team at number three, 27 years old. Medvedev at number four, 24 years old. Sitsipas at 22 is number six. Zverev 
is number seven, 23. Rublev now in the mix, at, and, and, and you'd think he's only going to get better, 23 years old at number eight. Schwartzman's 28 at number nine. Berrettini at number 10 at 24 years old. And then you mentioned Shapovalov, 21. Sinner's a bit down in the rankings. What is he like, uh, just barely inside the um, top 40? He's 37 or 38, something. He's in the top 40 now. 10 years old and then ranked 37 at the year end from God knows where at the beginning of the season. You think top 20 is coming next year. Felix Auger-Aliassime, not too far out of there. 20 years old, ranked 21. It's going to be a fun next five or so years. I really can't can't it's hard to imagine what the ATP finals 2025 is going to be like in Turin but I suspect it'll be a very different scene it'll be pretty exciting but um you made good points on six the future Davis Cup final be Russia Italy the way the way it looks now we might see that at some down the road yeah absolutely um you made good points about Steph I think He's got a great attacking mindset. He's got a lot of variety in his game. He's got a big serve, bigger than most people reckon, realize. And, um, you know, you're talking about the coach. Did we talk about this before, that he was – that Guga mentioned that there were some conversations about him potentially helping Tsitsipas out, um, and it didn't come to fruition. But when I heard about that, and I did hear about it at Roland Garros, the fact that Steph was looking for Guga – seemed to me like, okay, that's great. He's got an idea what he wants, the type of person he wants to maybe get in the mix with his dad and help him. And I thought, wow, if he had Guga, that would be that would be cool. Oh, that would be so cool. And they're both kind of tall, gangly guys with the one-hander that both uh, crowd-pleasing players. And also what Guga did for Brazil tennis, I think he could do for Greek tennis too. It's like, you know, Google's like a national hero there. It was beyond tennis. He was like a sporting legend there. So I think that would have been really cool. I know he has a young young family now. Maybe that was part of his thing. Maybe he didn't want to go on the road a lot. But I think that would be a huge, huge addition if he could work with him, even on a part-time basis, because the guy just had such a joy of the game. And I think Steph has that too, although, you know, he's like you said, he's been through some trials and tribulations this year. But that's just part of the maturation process. Yeah. Um, I guess last but not least, we can take a look at the debutantes. Um, this year was um, Medvedev coming back from from being a winless debutante, and uh, 2020 saw a winless debutante in Diego Schwartzman. We also saw Andrei Rublev, the, the man who really just um, raised eyebrows all season long, winning five titles and just reeling off win after win. He went one and two, got his first win in what was essentially a dead rubber. But what do you make of the performances of these two guys, both at the ATP finals and then maybe the experience they could get out of it and and move forward with? I mean, I wasn't that dramatically surprised. I thought Rublev might do a little better, but I, I Schwarzman was in a killer group. He's in with two guys who had already won the title. He's on a indoors where, you know, his serve is not a weapon at all. So I knew he was kind of in for a for a tough time. I think Rublev, part of it was he opened against Rafa. It's his idol. It's his first time playing. And, you know, he was a respectable straight sets loss. But I thought Rublev got better and better with each match. And I'm really high on his game. I like the way he competes. I like the way he plays. He hits the hell out of the ball. He hits the ball so big. And when you look at his game, there's a lot of room for improvement. I mean, he doesn't defend a lot. His net game is almost non-existent. He doesn't come in a lot. And when he does, it's usually the swing volleys instead of the traditional volleys. So I think there's a there's a lot of ways that he can get better. And he just seems to work his ass off whenever I've seen him pray. He works really, really hard. He has a really good coach. And uh, I, I think I think this guy's a potential top five. I mean, it's not saying a lot because he's in the top ten now, but 
I think he he's got a really really big upside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think your observations are correct in terms of his performance. Uh, he came out so nervous against Nadal. It took him like a set and a break to even like get into that match and properly hold his serve. He, he was just a, a mess of nerves. And the same thing against Tsitsipas. In the second match where he lost the opener 1-6, he came back and actually went to a third-set breaker there. He actually double-faulted on that match point. I mean, honestly, he was he was really a match point converted from being a semifinalist if you really consider the win over team a real win. So uh, Rublev not far off. Big serve, can play on any surface. And, yeah, you're right, made a lot of improvements and still has uh, is a blank slate in a, in a sense that he does have room to make more improvements, like getting to net more often, understanding the tactics the tactics of the game a little better, which he's been working on with his coach, Fernando Vicente. So, yeah, that was he was a great story this year, and his performance was pretty good. Um, and also, that, like, to pick up on what you said, that, you know, Davidenko was the first guy to win when, when it went to London in 2009, and Medvedev the last guy to win in London. But I think Rublev is a little bit like Davidenko in that he can play closer to the line, and Medvedev is much more comfortable when he's back further, especially on the return. He's so far back. But Rublev can step right up on the line. His hands are so good, and his timing is so sharp that he really takes your time away with both his ability to take the ball early, but he just hits the ball so big where you just feel like you're under fire from this guy. And that's an intimidating quality in of its own when you don't feel you have time to get off an adequate shot, and he can really do that to some of the best players. So he, he's got a real bright future, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, two topics. Let's, let's make sure we hit on every player a little bit. Rafa didn't get the win. He's, he's, he's made 10 ATP Finals appearances, qualified 16 straight years, um, reached the semi six times, reached the final, but it really doesn't seem to be in the cards for him at the Nito ATP, Nito ATP Finals. But then again, th- does it really matter? No, I don't think it matters. It doesn't detract from what he's done. You look at his body of work, he's never been indoors. has always been his worst surface. I think he's only got two indoors titles. So it's not a shock. I mean, it was surprising to me that he didn't close – when he served for it, he could have had a straight sets win. Yeah, but interesting. you know, it's never been here. I mean, the last time he was in the semis, I think it was 2015. I was there in 2017. He lost to Goffin first round. They say the court wasn't playing as quickly this year, so maybe that helped him a little. But he just doesn't get the bounce off the court that he does on other courts, even at the U.S. Open, which is a faster court. He doesn't get the bounce up, so the ball isn't coming as high on the opponent. And then, you know, you see some of these guys. Look at the guys at the in the finals this year. There's a lot of big guys. You know, Zverev 6'6", Medvedev 6'6", Sitsipas 6'4". So when you're not getting it up shoulder height on those guys, it's not as effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought he put forth a pretty good performance, played pretty well. Hasn't had a whole lot of tennis this season, you know, maybe peaked at Roland Garros, but still was able to do some pretty good things at Paris, getting that 1,000th win and and playing pretty well in London. And it was a great season because you look, you look at Roland Garros and that's where it begins and ends with Rafa and he's able to get that 20th major. And then, of course, the 1,000th win was nice. So I think in the end it was – pretty solid season and i appreciated everything he did up on the court and i appreciated his the way he's dealt with this virus and he's been very um very quick to talk about the fact that tennis isn't really important in the face of all we're facing as a as a you know as a population so that i always appreciate appreciated that a lot from what rafa was uh, you know from what he gave to the in his press conferences and whatnot Oh, absolutely. Let's not forget going into 
Paris, a lot of people are like, well, you know, the conditions, the ball's not going to bounce as high, it's going to be tougher, no fan, you know, and every, everything that was thrown at him, he was able to deal with. And, you know, you could make a case in his defense that maybe the ATP finals in the 50 years, maybe they should have had clay, an indoor clay court a few times, and maybe he would have won it, but, it, you know, it's his maybe. least favorite surf. <laughs> maybe they should mix it up in the future, you know. Maybe they should, but it probably won't happen until after he's retired, unfortunately for him. No, no, it looks it looks funny. I think when if people are looking down at the the greats of the game in one of this this most prestigious, most important tournament, and say, "Wow, Rafael Nadal never won that tournament," they and they're they're not really savvy tennis fans or, or, or tennis fans at all. They won't really get the fact that it was always played on what is essentially his worst surface. And he's, right. he's still done pretty well at the event over the years. I mean, I guess it is what it is, right? To coin a phrase I never really like to use. I think that might be the first time I actually <laughs> said it. But, I mean, it's a, it's a fast, hardcore event. It's held in November, and I guess that's the way it is and maybe the way it'll always be. But it just doesn't reflect on who, with the the fact that Nadal has never won it. It doesn't mean that much because it's, it's not his, it's not his uh, forte, really. Yeah, it's not, and you know, to his credit, he didn't pitch and moan about it. He just went out there and played as hard as he could, and and almost, almost got himself into the fight. So I can't, you know, you can't knock him. He, he's a total professional, and he went and uh, he accepted the challenge. It just didn't work out for him in the end. Yep. Last but not least, Alexander Zverev. I mean, if you look at it from just a pure perspective and forget about his off-court issues, you have to say he played pretty great towards the end of the season, and things are working out with David Ferrer as his coach. He's playing well. London, he didn't quite play so hot, though, went one and two and, and didn't qualify for the semis. Maybe just a little burnt out, and maybe all those off-court issues that we mentioned are weighing on him uh, to some degree. I think that's it's it's really reasonable to assume that, especially after the Paris final where he said, you know, look, I'm still smiling, you can't smile. I mean, that was kind of a weird sort of comment to make Very about weird. it. Thought and maybe he was just trying to sort of relieve some of the stress through that. And as far as the you know the whole abuse, how it's hard for me to say because I wasn't there. Nobody's in the room. You don't you don't know what went down. But it sounds like it wasn't good. Whatever happened, and you know I give him credit that he was able to pull himself together. And and uh, the Cologne back to back Cologne, he had great performances, and then Paris to get to the final. It looked like maybe mentally he was a little. you know, just a little worn out by the end. And uh, I agree with you, though. I think Ferrer is an excellent tennis mind, and I think Ferrer is absolutely going to help him, especially with the serve. You think of David Ferrer, he wasn't the tallest guy, but you never saw him double fault or give away multiple double faults in, in tight matches, tough circumstances. So I think he, he's going to do a world of, of good for him. And as far as the off-the-court stuff, you just have to see how that plays out and where the investigation leads us. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I, I just... It's hard to say what the truth is. You have two, you have two people saying opposite things. So it's hard to really right. on right. the outside to to know. But I just think it was a little tone deaf to say that he's smiling. It's a bad situation. Yeah. I think yeah. I think he needs to work a little bit with his PR and just be be more apologetic or be just be quiet. Um, it's it's a tough situation. Um, but as far as his play goes, you know he's a great young player and he continues to be one. And, not in love with the way he plays the game. I just feel like it's not that imaginative, but he, boy, he, he can be effective in so many ways. Yeah, and I mean, let's not forget, it was a couple years ago in London where he just steamrolled, especially those last two Federer and Djokovic matches where he was almost untouchable on serve. 
And so when he gets the first serve going and he's fully confident in him, it's really, really hard to break his serve. I agree with you. To me, he's less creative or less imaginative than like a Tsitsipas or a Medvedev or a team. But, I mean, that's just his game. You know, I just feel like it, it's a very straightforward, linear you know, hits big and flat, trying to hammer the backhand, you know what's coming, although he sliced a lot more, I felt, in this tournament. Uh, but, you know, that's not a knock on him. It's just his his playing style. I, I like people that can do more with the ball, spin the ball, do more, do more with angle and stuff like that. But still, he, you know, the guy should have won the U.S. Open. He was right there on the doorstep, and I think he'll he'll win a major in the next couple of years. I think if he if he solves the whole second serve thing, which still springs up from time to time. Yeah, I don't understand it. I just don't I don't understand what's going on there. The guy knows how to serve. Yeah, for sure. For sure. The guy's a huge serve. I think it's maybe a little bit mental and he gets a little bit overthinking it, you know. I'm more of like the Medvedev school where I like the less thinking where you just go up there and toss it and go at it. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of, you don't doubt yourself as much, but, right. you know, I'm not a top ten player. Easy for me to say. Well, you've, been a, you've been a tennis journalist for many, many years, Richard. Do you have examples of of guys that had these kind of yips, like to the, to the degree that, that Zverev has them? Great players like you know, him that just couldn't get it together in that way? You know, I remember them, as a woman, Dementieva had, a, had the real sidearm thing, and that really helped. Although she won the Olympic gold medal, that really prevented her from winning a slam. And with her, it was she just couldn't top spin the serve. It was always sliced. But on the men's side, for a guy that that level, I'll tell you one guy who did, believe it or not, struggle early in his career was Djokovic. There was one year he had more double faults than aces, but part of that was he had a shoulder and an elbow issue, but I've seen Djokovic really reconstruct his serve at different times, so it is something that you can work on, but I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone at that level that's just so, can be so dominant on the first serve, and just so sketchy on the second serve. I mean, I remember Sanga early on, his first serve was so huge, his second serve was more not mediocre, but more of a basic second serve, but it was never like, oh my God, Sanga's going to hit 10 double fault. Like, he never felt that at all, you know? It was just the disparity. Or Sam Query, huge first serve. His second serve maybe wasn't quite as big, but he wasn't like a double fault waiting to happen. So that's... It's tricky. You would think he would just get more spin, turn a little bit more, but it it hasn't it hasn't worked out yet. But then again, he hasn't had the full off season with David Ferrer. Maybe that'll help. I I think Ferrer will have to get into his head psychologically. I don't think it's a technique thing, right? Yeah, although I saw on Tennis Channel, Andy Roddick broke down his uh, the technical part, and he was suggesting he's just too straight on to the ball on the seconds, that his body is just too straight on to the ball, which was a good observation that I hadn't really noticed. So, But I, I agree with you. I think it's more of a mental thing than a, than a technical. I mean, you can hit a 140-mile-an-hour serve easily. You should be able to hit a... 105 mile an hour second serve, you know, yeah. consistently. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, but he played, yeah, some, it is. he played some great tennis. But, you know, it just shows that we only see the tip of the eye. There's a lot more going on in the players' lives than we're aware of, so it just shows you just don't always know the whole picture. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, but, but you know, overall, the second serve has got to be the, the most uns, uh, important and unsung shot in, in a tennis match in, of any tennis player. You I mean, you have to have a good one. To, to succeed, especially the way players are returning these days. It's so yeah, much pressure. Absolutely. You put so much pressure on yourself in your service games when you're struggling with that stroke. 
Yeah, and it, and it alters your approach to the first serve. Like, if he's not confident in the second serve, is he thinking, well, i got to take a little bit off the first serve? And then if he does that, you're sort of diminishing one of your biggest weapons. You want to go up there and let it fly on the first serve when you can serve like he does. So, yeah, it's definitely weird. It'll be interesting to see if he can conquer that um, next year. That'll be, that'll be his number one mission for sure. Yeah, yeah. So what else you got? Any, are we going to wrap it up? We're going to say goodbye to London and hello to Turin, and that it's a wrap for this show. Or anything to add? Yeah, in, well, in I hope minute? we'll both be in Turin next year. I don't know though. The way things are going, who knows? But yeah, I'm looking forward to Turin. It should be great. It should be great. It should be good. I hope. The, I mean, I guess in parting, I'll say that it would be really fun if Yannick Sinner or even Matteo Berrettini can qualify to have one Italian guy to kick off the first year in Turin. That would be pretty cool. Hey, let's put Fabio in there, too. We'll get two guys. <laughs> three. Get, get three. Berrettini, you know, and, and maybe Sinego. You never yeah. know. Four Italians yeah. in the ATP finals. That would be fun. But, um, yeah, I guess I guess we pretty much covered it. Let's um, let's get together in the, over the next couple of weeks and do some broader breakdowns of the 2020 season and then maybe something where we look ahead to 2021, which, as we know, is still very much in doubt with the calendar. Let's hope for the best for Australia. And I think, you know, you got to give tennis credit that they were able to pull off what they did in the limited sort of turnaround time. Usually it takes years to make schedule changes. They were able to do it under the gun this year with a global pandemic and keep people relatively safe. I think, uh, you know, that's, that's, it was a real big achievement for, for, for the game. Yeah, definitely. All right, Richard, thanks for joining. And uh, we'll talk with you soon. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too, Chris. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This edition of the Lucky Let Court podcast is a wrap. Thank you guys so much for listening and following along this year. And yeah, keep in touch because we're going to do a couple year-ending podcasts. Maybe have two or three before the end of this this year and the beginning of next season, which, of course, we don't know when it's actually going to start in 2021, but we'll be there when it does. You guys take care. Be safe. Be sane. Don't forget you can find us on social media at facebook.com slash tennis now on twitter at tennis underscore now on the web www.tennisnow.com and of course we'd love it if you rate review subscribe to this podcast on apple podcast just go into your app type in lucky let cord podcast thanks for listening talk to you soon